Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Hello, this is Ken Root. As people of the Plains and Midwest states, as farmers, outdoor enthusiasts, and just interested observers, weather impacts our lives. It can be mundane most of the time, hot, cold, dry, wet, seasonal. But this landscape can be hit by some of the most violent atmospheric aberrations on Earth. I have witnessed an EF5 tornado in Union City, Oklahoma. I've seen the destruction of a derecho in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I have seen flooding on the Mississippi in eastern Iowa and on the Missouri on the western side of the state. In winter, I'm now living in Fort Myers, Florida, a coastal community seriously damaged by Hurricane Ian just this past September. Our guest today has seen all these things from his perspective as a meteorologist and forecasting company owner in a career that I cannot believe has spanned 50 years. Mike Smith and I first met in our first professional broadcasting jobs at WKY Radio and Television in Oklahoma City. Neither of us stayed there too long, just long enough to realize there was a big world out there and we wanted to jump into it. I've always admired Mike for his drive and determination in his chosen profession. He has the right stuff. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ken. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm the same. I'm in the cold country right now and getting ready to go to Florida here pretty soon. You know, you don't appear to have lost any of your fascination for extreme weather, business, or predicting what Mother Nature will do next. Could you tell younger people how that you've kept your enthusiasm? It is probably because of the way I got into the field at the age of five, five years old, kindergarten age. An F5 tornado went through Ruskin Heights, which was a southernmost suburb of Kansas City at the time, and it destroyed my kindergarten. It caused tremendous damage, and it killed 44 people. And the next day, my mother drove me through ground zero, and I remember the moment. I said to myself, anything that could do all this had to be pretty interesting. And from that moment on, I've known I wanted to be a meteorologist. We have many challenges in our field. We have tamed the weather. That's the title of my book, Warnings, the True Story of How Science Tamed the Weather, but we are a very long way of conquering it. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever conquer the weather, probably not, but it is fascinating. Uh, the intersection of weather and business and weather and larger society is fascinating. Uh, last week, we had a tornado outbreak in the south. We were able to tell people 
three days ahead of time that not only was this going to be a tornado outbreak, but that we had a chance of really bad tornadoes. The ability to do that is really something we've only had for maybe the last 10, maybe 15 years with any skill. The death toll, in spite of all of those strong tornadoes, was only two. To the people, the friends and family, the loved ones of those people who died, it's a giant tragedy. But that sort of tornado outbreak used to kill 50 to 100 people. You know, at 3 o'clock in the morning is when the deaths occurred. We had many tornadoes between 10 p.m. and the following morning, which is when it's most deadly. Nighttime tornadoes are two and a half times more deadly than daytime tornadoes. And so we were able to tell people what was coming. We were able to uh, minimize the loss of life. And I just still find this fascinating, plus a great way to spend your life and your career. Well, your first boss, Jim Williams, who was yes. chief meteorologist at WKY when you came there and during the time I was there, used to talk with me at length about this. He had your fascination as well. He said one of the best things about being in the southern tornado alley, Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, is that the tornadoes usually hit during the day, late yes. afternoon storms. And he said those in the southeast are more likely to hit at night, plus the terrain is more uh, rolling, so you can't see them coming in on you. And he really attributed, you know, at that time, back in the 70s, our survival of tornadoes because of our visual outlook, not anything else. Well, first of all, I uh, Jim has passed away, as you know, but I owe Jim a great deal for getting my career started in the right way. He was a very modest but brilliant meteorologist, taught me so much. And so Jim, God rest his soul, was a wonderful man. And I, as I said, I owe him a great deal. Jim is right, but then when you have a nighttime tornado in the Great Plains, such as the Blackwell and Udall tornadoes of May 1955, uh, you can still get 102 people who die. Or if you take the tri-state tornado of 1947, which occurred across the Texas panhandle, northwest Oklahoma, and south-central Kansas, much of that tornado is on the ground more than 150 miles. Much of that tornado occurred at night, and we lost 180 people. So it is quite possible when you get a nighttime tornado in the Great Plains to have similar loss of life as you have in the southeast. Mm, well, um, you always have been real focused, but, you know, <laughs> you were ahead of your time in being able to rise up to be on television as a meteorologist while you were in college, and this was the yes. number one station in the market. But I think the greatest one you ever pulled off that I pieced together from a previous conversation with you was that you took Kathleen, your future wife, out parking. You saw a tornado or you saw a thunderstorm and you wrote up a paper and got extra credit in meteorology class. Now that's pretty Yes, hard. I did do that. Uh, we weren't, we weren't parking. We were actually storm chasing. Sure you were. But, yeah. uh, she would want me to make note of that. But, <laughs> uh, yes, I, I'm the, I'm the only guy who can take a romantic occasion 
and turn it into a scientific paper. And that was published in Weatherwise magazine in 1975. <laughs> Let me turn you to what you love and what we're all really interested in. Some of us absolutely fascinated by meteorology and its progression. You know, you and I grew up in the beginning of the TV era. We were, yes. all, we were seeing TV by the mid-1950s and recognizing it. And weather was always on TV in Oklahoma City where I was growing up, and I suppose in Kansas City as well, in each of the newscasts. But reaching back before that time, was meteorology really that archaic, or was it a bureaucracy fight within the U.S. government that kept us from really being informed in a chance to be warned, as your book points out? Some of each can. First of all, in Kansas City, the TV weather, when I moved to go from Kansas City to Norman to go to college, can't, none of the Kansas City stations had radar. All of the Oklahoma City stations, even though it was a smaller market, had radar. None of the TV stations in Kansas City had meteorologists. All of the Oklahoma City stations did. Oklahoma City... Dallas, two or three more were the pioneer markets as far as television weather was concerned. And the Weather Bureau, we talk about bureaucracy today. It was a bureaucratic mess at times back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The National Weather Service was called the Weather Bureau in those days. And the Weather Bureau simply did not want to be in the tornado forecasting and warning business. And a meteorologist by the name of Harry Volkman on our station, WKY, a few years before we got there, did the first ever tornado warning. And he continued to do them. And the Weather Bureau didn't like it. And so finally, the chief of the Weather Bureau flew to Oklahoma City, gathered up all of the emergency managers and said, if WKY wants to do this, they can do it, but we aren't going to do it. Finally, after more public demand and more editorials written in the newspaper, the Weather Bureau in Oklahoma City began to issue tornado warnings. That was in the early 1950s. However, where I lived in Kansas City, they still didn't issue tornado warnings. That only changed when a courageous meteorologist by the name of Joe Oxley, who had been the Navy's meteorologist at the battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa in World War II, decided he had a moral obligation to the people of Kansas City and put out the information that we would consider to be tornado warnings back in 1957. And he thought he was going to be fired the next day, but the uproar of why haven't we been doing this before and the editorials and the newspaper and everything were so strong, the Weather Bureau finally reluctantly decided, yeah, we're going to be in the tornado warning business. You know, your entire book, which is an excellent book, by the way, very well written, it's called Warnings, the true story of how science tamed the weather, is caught up in this bureaucracy that went on between the FAA and the National Weather Service and all the other things that have taken place that you've described in the early years to where that I, I am sorry that you have had to fight that <laughs> your career because it's clearly 
the wrong thing to do to choose one over the other when you're in government service, but in a bureaucracy, that's the way things work. In, let's see, it would have been 1990, I was asked to testify in Washington before the National Research Council, and they were debating what the role of the private sector in meteorology ought to be and what the role of the National Weather Service should be, because the Weather Service went through a gigantic reorganization in the 1990s, and that reorganization was a very good thing. Having said that, my sister-in-law, who is rather liberal politically, had heard me talk about all of this bureaucracy, and she watched the hearing on C-SPAN, and and she called me, and she said, Mike, I can't believe what you've had to go through listening to these people. What you're saying makes total sense, and they were just spouting bureaucracy. We can't do this. We can't do that. For someone from outside the profession, it's really hard to imagine how some of us have had to work very hard, even though we are ostensibly leaders in the private sector, we don't want people to die from tornadoes and hurricanes. Of course not. So we felt that trying to improve the National Weather Service, trying to improve the quality of storm warnings is a public good. And so we've been willing to spend the time and sometimes money. They don't reimburse you. You know, they call you to testify, but they don't reimburse your expenses. The time and money that it's taken to do all of this has come out of our pockets, but over and all, it's a good expenditure. Mike Smith is my guest. He is a longtime meteorologist. He started a company called Weather Data. We may get a chance to talk about it here in a little while, but in the beginning of this, I would love to be able to get you to talk about a man that you have highlighted as uh, really a a hero of the 20th century, and that was Dr. Ted Fujita. Oh, my Um, gosh. The scale that we have, this F scale as we knew it, now we call it an EF scale, and I saw an EF5 tornado where I saw the aftermath of one that you made the comment, it not only tears everything up, it cleans up after itself. Right. Amazing damage that it did. He came up with that, but could you give me – why he's really known worldwide as a scientist and the interface that you may have had with him during your career. Oh, my gosh. Ted was the most brilliant meteorologist by far that I've ever met. A very, very, very smart and innovative man. And he created what we could call forensic meteorology, the ability to track down piece of data after piece of data that by itself might not seem all that significant, but put them together as as the parts of a puzzle and learn something completely new. Ted not only emigrated from Japan, not knowing any English, by the way, came to the United States in the late 1940s to the University of Chicago to study thunderstorms. Ted not only created the Fujita scale that ranks tornadoes by their damage. He also observed that tornadoes often break into smaller tornadoes, little vortices, and that that's why a house that's heavily damaged next door to a house that's lightly damaged, it wasn't because the tornado's skipping up and down, which is what we thought. It's because there are these little mini tornadoes 
that are stronger than the main tornado that rotate around it. But perhaps his biggest contribution was the discovery of the downburst, a type of thunderstorm that we didn't know existed. The winds come out of a thunderstorm in a downburst, and they accelerate as they come down, and they can reach speeds of 150 miles an hour. That's amazing. And when they get to the ground, they spread out, and they create a rapid change of wind speed and direction. And if an airplane happens to be landing, they can crash. And from the 1960s to the mid-1980s, downbursts were the number one cause of airline accidents in the United States. More than 500 people lost their lives in these crashes. And for years and years and years, the bureaucracy absolutely put their fingers in their ears and said, no, 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 we don't believe Ted. We haven't seen it, so we don't believe it. Well, one day I was out chasing with my fellow meteorologist, Steve Amber, and this was in July of 1978. And we happened to be in the right place at the right time and took a series of seven photographs that proved the existence of the downburst. Then Ted was able to gather some radar data that proved they existed. But still, the FAA and the National Weather Service didn't believe it. And it took the August 1985 crash of Delta Flight 191 in Dallas, which killed, if I recall correctly, 147 people. That that number may not be exactly right for the FAA to finally get on the program and put in the instrumentation needed to prevent this type of accident. Ted was so brilliant and so original, and he was a very modest man, man I greatly admire. Unfortunately, he passed away uh, more than 20 years ago, but I'm, not, I'm pretty sure there'll never be another like him. The stories that you paint in your book so vividly about him and about the things that came from it, he was almost like Einstein in that what he theorized later on was proven. Yes, yes. And nobody would believe him. Even though he had a great deal of evidence, no one would believe him. And it was so frustrating for those of us who would look at the evidence and say, you know, Ted's on to something here. And there, there was a small group of people, uh, John, Dr. John McCarthy, Dr. Roger Wakimoto, and a few others who understood that Ted was right and that we had to do something to fix this. But again, we ran into the Washington, D.C. bureaucracy, and it took much longer than it needed to, and hundreds of people lost their lives unnecessarily. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worked with them for the last 17 years and worn their hearing aids for that length of time, and I have had excellent results. Taylor, dementia is of concern of people as we get older, and I understand there are several modifiable risks that you can employ. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, sure can. And so the studies were done by Johns Hopkins, um, Stanford, Cambridge University, so world-renowned, um, you know, research centers. And what they found was there are 12 
risk factors that you can actually modify, you know, in your life. Now, they broke it down by age under 45, 45 to 65, and 65 and above. Under the age of 45, proper education, so being well-educated, is the number one thing you can do under the age of 45. Between the age of 45 and 65, obesity, alcohol consumption, blood pressure, brain injury, and hearing loss. So between the age of 45 and 65 is actually the, the number one thing you can do in that age bracket is actually treat your hearing loss. So it's not an age related thing. So between 45 and 65, over 65, smoking, depression, social isolation, air pollution. And when you talk about air pollution, it's not just being out and about in a large city. There are actually carcinogens in a wood burning stove that can lead to one, hearing loss, but also um, things you can do for dementia. So it's not just out and about in large cities. Um, lack of physical activity and diabetes. Um, it can actually prevent or delay up to 40% of the dementia cases by modifying these pieces. And when you look at all those 12, nine of those are actually correlated to an untreated hearing loss. But the number one thing you can actually do out of all 12 and do it between the age of 45 and 65 is actually treat your hearing loss. So when they talk about hearing loss being a, a, a very important thing, treating your hearing loss is the most modifiable thing you can do to help offset dementia. And wearing hearing devices or treating your hearing loss can reduce dementia symptoms by up to 75%. So studies are showing not only that hearing loss plays a critical role in health conditions, you know, dementia being the, the biggest one, but also treating your hearing loss is not the number one thing you can do um, to help with dementia. That is very interesting information. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can call them at 877-955-4020. A good farmer will never forget 4020 as the last four digits. Or you can go online at iowahearing.com. Your book is good from beginning to end, but in what I read, the best part is the thoroughness in which you go through the flight and crash of that Delta 191 that you'd mentioned a moment ago. That was on approach to DFW Airport, right? and there was a thunderstorm, theoretically. A little thunderstorm. That's the interesting thing. And it caused a downburst that pushed the plane into the ground. There was a, a trial afterwards on this, and I want you to detail this for me. Two sides in the trial that weren't going to waver at all, and the trial took 14 months in front yes. of the judge to get to the final decision, which you can give a little later on. But tell me the setup of this. The airplane is on approach, and the tower is seeing them and seeing the thunderstorm, they then fly into it, and then they crash. Right. It's not that simple. No, it's not that simple. The plane uh, touched the ground with its wheels down twice to the north of the airport, was able to gain just a touch of altitude, but then when it went across the highway that is just north of DFW, one of the jet's engines clipped an automobile, and it killed the occupant who was on his way to his own birthday party. No. 
That was the first of the fatalities of Delta 191. Uh, it was sent pinwheeling into the ground, and it then veered off to the left and hit a giant tank on the northeast side of the airport. The airplane broke into pieces. The thunderstorm got heavier. There was lightning thunder. The winds gusted to 100 miles an hour. The rescue crews couldn't find the people or the plane. In fact, once they finally got past the fencing on the north side of DFW, they only found the plane by following the bodies. The the bodies were sort of laid out one after another, sort of like a path to the main wreckage. And the force of the crash was such that a number of bodies were found completely naked. All of their clothing had been stripped off by the force of the crash. So the tower did not warn the aircraft. The captain, who a lot of us think was not on his sharpest that day, I believe his first officer was trying to tell him, hey, this is bad. We need to get out of here. But in those days, you did not, even if you're a first officer, you did not question the captain. Fortunately, that's changed. And so Delta got sued. The U.S. government got sued. Everybody was suing everybody. And there were two trials. There was the big trial, which was the one that made all the headlines. I was the expert witness for the plaintiff in the second Delta trial because he had been rendered a quadriplegic and the, his attorney, a man, a now deceased man by the name of John Howie, thought that he was not going to get out of any settlement or, or award the kind of money that was going to be needed to care for him the rest of his life. And so you had two trials going on, overlapping each other, and it was a mess. Uh, it was a mess, but it was also fascinating. You had very much larger-than-life people. The government's attorney was a very sharp woman who was also a pilot and a scientist before she got her law degree. Well, I want to say this delicately, but she was very outspoken, and she was a very sharp dresser, and she would try to uh, use her personality to influence things, and perhaps did successfully a few times. The National Weather Service did not issue a storm warning, and as it turned out, both of the meteorologists that were in position to do something were at dinner. Both the National Weather Service Fort Worth meteorologist who had responsibility for issuing storm warnings and the radar operator at dinner. The meteorologist at the Fort Worth Air Route Traffic Control Center at dinner. Uh, they fixed that. But it, it was a case of everything going wrong. Uh, Delta didn't train its pilots the way it should have because it didn't believe in downbursts. The FAA didn't have the equipment and didn't train the uh, tower people to warn pilots. 
And then the National Weather Service, everybody was at dinner. Everybody was suing everybody. Mike, the thing that I read in your book that was one of the most disturbing is that the FAA doesn't recognize a tornado warning that comes from the National Weather Service. Yes. The National Weather Service had issued a thunderstorm warning, and yet the tower did not know that that was on their plate as they were putting that plane in. That's right, and that's still a problem today. There was an incident in Florida where a tornado crossed the runways just ahead of a landing aircraft. The people in the tower had no idea a tornado was possible. So they went out and bought a $25 weather radio so they could get National Weather Service tornado warnings for the Daytona area. And the FAA made them take, take it out. And then in, let's see, it would be 2013, a tornado hit the Lambert St. Louis International Airport, did a lot of damage to the airport, did a lot of damage to airplanes. Six airplanes, if I recall correctly, were damaged, including one that was full of passengers. And again, the tower didn't know that there was a tornado warning. And there was a brouhaha in the media and elsewhere. But to my knowledge, the FAA hasn't changed it. They they have this siloed view of the world that tornado warnings are not official aviation forecasts. They're issued for the public at large. And the FAA, in their mind, we don't want to clutter pilots and air traffic control minds with all of this non-aviation stuff, except that a tornado warning is very important for pilots to know. Because it's not an official aviation product, the FAA does not recognize tornado warnings, and the people in the control towers don't know tornado warnings are in effect. Mike, what was the outcome of the trials on the Delta flight that crashed at Dallas-Fort Worth? The judge essentially held Delta liable. He was very um, critical of the actions of the FAA and the National Weather Service. But ultimately, the captain was in the position. The captain knew there was a thunderstorm ahead of him. The FAA and Delta's flight manual said, thou shall not fly into thunderstorms. So even though he didn't know that that particular thunderstorm had a downburst. He did something that he shouldn't have done. Therefore, the ultimate liability, according to Judge Bilyeu, was uh, Delta's. I understand there was one more thing in there, and that was that the first computer simulation was built and shown in that trial. Now, that yes, takes us and- back. The beginning of your company and other and, and other things of the computer age, but that apparently had some pretty strong impact when they could go second by second, and then back it up and run it forward and put that together and show it to that judge. You can find it on YouTube uh, if you'll uh, search on Delta One Nine One animation. You should be able to find it from there. That was the first known 
computer generated animation that was let uh, into evidence in a federal trial. And it is just fascinating the way they put together. In fact, much of the information they put into that was Fujita's, uh, but they put the information together second by second by second. You, you hear the first officer trying to prompt the captain saying lightning coming out of that one. And the captain who should have been paying attention said, where? And the first officer says, right ahead of us. Mm. And the captain just doesn't respond as he should. And so when you, when you put it all together, it really is pretty damning, uh, as far as, as the, the malfeasance, let's say that, of the captain allowing his crew to fly into the thunderstorm and the terrible, awful wreck that occurred after. Mike Smith is my guest. He's written a book called Warnings, which is about uh, science and meteorology. Uh, in his long career, I hate to say that because he was <laughs> hardly shaving when I first met him, but we uh, we paralleled each other a couple of times, and we were in Wichita together. You still live in Wichita, Kansas, don't I you? I do. We love Wichita. It's a great place to live, and for us, it's the right size. Um you have everything you want in the city. Uh, I mean, s- a ballet, opera, uh, symphony orchestra, all of that. But you don't have the traffic and the cost of some of the larger cities. So we're very happy here. Well, I can see it's right in the middle of weather country, tornado yes. country, which may intrigue you a bit. But you started your business, Weather Data, after you'd been, and during the time you were a television meteorologist in Wichita, back in uh, 81, I guess it was, which is interesting to me that you almost were exactly at the same time as people started using laptop computers before, at the time, computers became available to the general public. Did the two tie together for you to be able to make that weather data business go? It didn't at first. We could see the uh, computer revolution in meteorology that was two or three years ahead of us. And so while the company was founded in August of 1981, we didn't have much computerization until 1985 when we had a very, very smart meteorologist, Ph.D., come to work for us who was a brilliant programmer. So brilliant that when I retired in 2018, some of the computer code that he had written in 1985 was still in use. <laughs> and anyway, we we started computerizing the company in 1985. By 1990, we had computer radar that was able to let us see all over the country in high resolution. And so we created the first ever organization, government or private, that issued storm warnings for the United States, Canada, Mexico, and the Caribbean uh, for our clients in those areas out of a single location. And we were very, very successful. Mike Smith, who was a television meteorologist for many years, uh, owned a company called Weather Data that pioneered advising companies of what was coming and trying to be specific in that. Uh, some amazing stories of trains and planes that uh, he has been involved with throughout his career, has a book called Warnings. 
I do enjoy every chance I get the opportunity. The feeling's mutual, Ken. I know every time we get together, whether it's over the phone or through the internet or in person, it's always a pleasure. And I've certainly enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.